Hello, hello. Welcome to the Henry George Program. I'm Mark Molino, and I'm joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz-Lucas, representing EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbach Foundation. This is a program dedicated to finding practical answers to the housing crisis here in the Bay Area and beyond, economic volatility, poverty, and environmental degradation. More specifically, we compare and contrast the ideas of the 19th century economist Henry George with that of both historical and contemporary thinkers. We address issues ranging from artificial intelligence, automation, and universal basic income to city planning and the land value tax, a concept popularized by George. This week, we welcome Corey Smith of the San Francisco Housing Action Coalition, SFHAC, whose goal is to sharply increase the rate of housing production from 1,500, what we have currently, to 5,000 new homes per year. Welcome, Corey. Hey, how you doing? Doing pretty okay. And uh, hello, Jake. Hey. Hey, hey. Uh, yeah, so it is It is an exciting way in some places that we're getting more and more uh, YIMBY activity. Uh, people saying, you know, yes, please please build here. Uh, SF Hack, uh, what, what is the differentiator? How do we keep them, uh, how do we keep them all sorted out between this and, and everyone else trying to, trying to fix the housing here in the Bay Area? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I So we do joint happy hours with, with all of the Yimbies uh, once a month. And I asked one time Laura Clark, uh, one of their co-executive directors, what's the difference between our organizations? And she goes, well, we're the punk rock organization in the pro-housing world. And uh, and so, you know, I think, I think message is pretty consistent. And I really think, honestly, a lot of where we differentiate is, is tone and tactics. Um, but at the end of the day, more housing is better than less housing. And what the Yimbies have been able to do has truthfully been a, a tone setter in a very positive way, uh, not only in San Francisco, but around the entire Bay Area. So do you, outside of tone, do you actually find yourself disagreeing on much? Occasionally. Um, oftentimes, though, to be honest, it's a little bit more about the politics as opposed to the policy, just because we operate in in different spaces in the San Francisco and, and Bay Area political world. Um, so, you know, we have nuanced differences uh, and and we talk about those and we address those. But, you know, uh, by and large, we realize we're on the same team and we work together, uh, you know, whenever possible. Yeah. So uh, what, what first what was the first time you realized that the housing here in the in San Francisco is is not not working, not normal? Oh, well, you know, I took a abnormal path to all of this. I spent a few years coaching basketball, then I spent some years in tech. Uh, and I actually wanted to come in uh, from the political aspect and had no urban planning background. Uh, but I got involved in a campaign and, and came across the organization and just started to learn about uh, about housing in the Bay Area. Like many others, I was you know, originally inspired by Kim Mike Cutler's Burrowing Owls article. And I mean, once you start kind of diving into some basic facts about it and just the simple, you know, how many jobs have come to the Bay Area since the turn of the century versus how many homes we've built, um, you know, from our perspective, and I imagine the three of us, it shouldn't seem like rocket science. Um, but, you know, there's other interests and, and those other interests often are very valid. Um, but, you know, we we disagree. <laughs> Yeah, on uh, SF Hack, uh, one of one of uh, the things that it it proclaims: who gets to live in San Francisco? SF Hack says anyone who wants to, uh, and that is 
some would say that's just common sense. You know, you shouldn't have anything which privileges other people over over existing folks or people who have the money to do it. Mm-hmm. But it is controversial. A lot of people do feel that SF is for SF. There's this pretty, you know, there's a kind of grotesque group called that. It's uh, SF for SFers. Yeah. Uh, and how, I guess, how do you just say that it's right to, to make SF for everybody? Well, I think it's just a, a personal philosophy, and I always approach this either from, you know, I think we take a very macro view of it, and we look at this from a big picture problem. You know, overpopulation is something I, I think about a lot. Uh, climate challenge is something I think about a lot. Um, livability, uh, you know, commute times, all of this stuff is a big deal to me. And so that puts me on the side of, you know, if we have to change the physical structure of a city, you know, let's make sure we get the appropriate transportation infrastructure and, and improved operations in place. Um, then, then everything's a go. But the other side to that argument is, and and this is completely justified. It's just a more micro view um, that you know, life is short, and we don't need to be overly concerned with what's going to happen a couple of generations from now. We should be enjoying our lives in this amazing city. And when you create a bunch of traffic and a bunch of construction. And when, when you're changing theoretically what makes this city great, um, you know, that, that view isn't wrong. I disagree with it. Um, but I think it's important to understand where, where those folks are coming from, um, and acknowledge it and just say, you know, we disagree and we're going to try to out organize you. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess they are saying there are advantages of lower density versus higher density, but it's they they come with the secondary thing of saying, and who gets to enjoy the lower density? We do, which is mm-hmm. it's it's a political answer. I mean, I, I certainly respect. You go back to the Marion Headlands; they're going to densify it, and I, I think it's a great thing that we have a lot of nature preserves. I think it's great that we. Uh, that we do preserve the wilderness, but the people in the Marin, uh, Marin, Marin County uh, certainly believe that, well, keep it low density, but we have God's given right to be here. And that's I, something I, I definitely feel is kind of begging the question. Uh, and it's always good to, to, I guess, shake that up. This whole idea of, uh, you know, overpopulation, um, you know, it's valid when you think about the theoretical limits of the, of the planet and, you know, living within our ecological means, but even the idea of overpopulation is kind of a manufactured, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If Mm -hmm. you think things are overpopulated, you don't want to create infill, and that means that people are just squeezed all the more, and then you can point to this self-fulfilling prophecy, which you're not calling a self-fulfilling prophecy, and say, look, we're overpopulated. We can't accommodate more people. Go away. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's if you yeah, it's 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 kind of scary uh, how overpopulation is is out there. Uh, SF Hack displays uh, its lesson of the Bay Area housing crisis and what can be done with Barrier Housing 101. It's a 25 minute presentation that you guys put on. Uh, we mm-hmm. don't have 25 minutes, but what is what is the ultra ultra short version of uh, of what's going on in the Bay Area? Well, I think the first thing that's really key is we reframe the entire conversation and don't use the word crisis. The Bay Area is experiencing a housing shortage, and we're experiencing an affordability and displacement crisis. Um, 
But, you know, simply speaking, if we have built the homes that we needed to for the last 30 or 40 years, we'd be in a significantly better situation uh, today. So the other thing that we really like to associate with that is crisis invokes this notion that we don't know we don't know what's going on and we don't know what to do and we don't know how to fix it. That's not true. We're, we're perfectly aware of the solutions. We just have to create the political will to get it done. So the point of the presentation that we take around to you know, companies and neighborhood associations and uh, quite literally anywhere, you know, we, we try to touch on why it's important for different individuals. Is it a socioeconomic issue, you know, cultural diversity? Is it environmental um, you know, is it just simply the rent is too damn high? We frame the problem. Uh, we explain how we got there. And, you know, it's it's 30 to 40 years of bad decisions that we made. This wasn't like somebody waved their magic wand. Uh, and then we present the solutions. And we make it very clear that if you want, and, and if we, and I mean the royal we, want to fix this, people got to get involved and you have to be engaged politically. Um, and that's really kind of the big takeaway that we want people to have is this is fixable, but, you know, you got to do something. Um, get off the sidelines. And, and how well does this uh, message uh, get over when you put on this presentation? Positive. And, and what's interesting, it's positive not only for kind of the, the stereotypical millennial tech person, um, but I go into neighborhood associations where everybody is over 50, everybody is a homeowner. And when I explain the difficulties of getting something done from a development standpoint in San Francisco, I just ask the question, how many of you have ever had to go to the planning department to get a permit for something? And sure enough, there's at least a half dozen. And then I ask those people, was it cheap? And everybody shakes their head no. And I say, was it fast? And everybody shakes their head no. And I go, okay, well, imagine that on a $100 million deal. You know, we're talking a $25,000 deck. The, you know, there are people's careers and food on the table for their families at stake with this stuff. So even that, it, they, they get that. And being able to talk in a way to the audience that they understand and they relate, you know, we're not going to get every person, but we don't need every person. We just need you know, a significant majority to, to be voting the right way. So you're, uh, the policy proposals of SF Hack uh, are saying that 5,000 units a year would, unlike now, allow San Francisco to keep up with the current growth uh, of population. Uh, does this also account for the backlog, or is this basically write that off and we'll just make it work going forward? So the 5,000 a year number is so housing prices increase at the exact same rate as inflation. That's not a a um, an opinion. That that's a mathematical formula that's been put together. The city's chief economist said that. I'm actually organizing a panel at Spur around how many numbers do we how many do we need? How many units do we actually need to build? And it's all based on your desired outcome. Um, it's not a right or wrong answer, but we've just kind of circled it as okay. Here's the target. Here's why. Um, you know. And and that's not necessarily even up for debate um, by economists and people that understand how this stuff works. Somebody will debate it, but somebody will always debate everything. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's you can set aside, you know, talking about the assumptions going into a model. In San Francisco, you get people who just don't really acknowledge that supply and demand is a real thing. I, how, how often do you deal with people who tend to who tend to be real skeptics of the idea that housing supply matters? I make a very strong point in my life to not argue with the idiots. Um, there are there are people that want to focus on the demand side. We need to decrease the amount of jobs that we're bringing to the region. We wholeheartedly acknowledge that that would work. That is a way to tackle this problem. It's just not the route that we want to take. And for the people that aren't quite sure, you know, we in our Bay Area Housing 101 show data that is decently digestible for the average person. And um, and they go, OK, um, you know, one of the famous places that this came from was a, a housing activist in San Francisco named Calvin Welch, who has a history of, of protecting actually my neighborhood, the Haight-Ashbury. And he has this long discussion where he talks about supply and demand and goes through it and yada 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 Um, but at the end of the day he confuses causation with correlation and doesn't look at the macro environment and understand how the bay area housing market actually plays into this it's not just the san francisco housing market Um, and so most people get that and the ones that don't you know you just kind of got to go okay and move on yeah, so I guess the people who do argue uh, that, yeah, if you build more housing, kind of like it's the argument against highways. If you widen highways, you'll just get more cars on the road. If you build more housing, uh, there'll just be more people moving to San Francisco to, to fill it up. What's, what's, what's the best way to, to, to counter that? What's the alternative? You know, the, there are hundreds of thousands of people that commute from the Central Valley every single day to the Bay Area core for work. Um. You know, we we have to, again, thinking from a macro perspective, take the best real world solution that exists. Um, One of the key things I think we also need to do is acknowledge that, because I get this a lot, well, all the new housing is only going to be for wealthy people. That's true. Um, The reason we don't have middle income housing in the Bay Area is because we didn't build market rate housing in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, I am a believer in filtering. I, I followed the data on, on that. And so uh, acknowledging this isn't a short term fix. I mean, yeah, this is something that that we are way behind. So 5,000 a unit, 5,000 units per year, every year for the next 20 years um, to get into an improved situation but it takes time absolutely so i I guess one one ugly side of political uh feasibility is what is politically feasible to build it usually isn't building where perhaps they should be you never build in the rich folks neighborhoods it's it's it tends to be built in where people have less political power to counter it uh and that's that's what gentrification is it's it's filtering and eventually we'll get housing to people but you, it certainly puts the screws on people who lack the political power today. Uh, what's how, what is the the right answer for how we make sure people aren't just screwed over with this? So again, following facts, and and I think pro housing folks actually we get a little too wonky sometimes. We don't make the emotional arguments, which are oftentimes more politically powerful. Um, but you know, we know that building more market rate housing in a neighborhood decreases low income displacement. That's a fact. Um, 
The other thing I think that's really critical is differentiating displacement from gentrification because they're very, very different. Displacement is people getting kicked out of their homes and being forced to leave an area. Gentrification is a changing neighborhood, and gentrification can actually be positive in a lot of ways. Um, you know, safer neighborhoods. When you have a street that is gentrified, maybe that means there's more street lights at night and people can walk up and down the street safely um, because there's you know, more, more going on, more people. That is gentrification, but I would argue that's a positive thing. Um, the negative impact for gentrification is displacement. It's where people do get, get priced out, um, and it's a very difficult balance uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, so uh, I, I guess the current, the current solutions for affordability, which is the people who tend to say, oh, don't, don't try to build market-rate housing to make things affordable. We have a solution for it. It, it tends to be uh, you know, heavy impact fees and then also having a certain rate of below-market housing for, for each unit and, and so on. Uh, what's your general impression of how well these are working today in, in actually giving the affordable housing the people, people demand? So in San Francisco, there was a project on Indiana Street uh, on, uh, in Potrero Hill, and there were 17 below market rate units that 1,700 people applied for. Um, there's a, a you know, popular home builder in San Francisco that just describes it as a lottery for low income people. And if you're lucky enough to get it, great. Um, uh, you know, I'm a firm, firm supporter of inclusionary housing because I do think we need to be finding things in the short term to be able to help people. Um, my organization helped write the original inclusionary legislation in San Francisco with, at the time, Supervisor Mark Leno. But we would also argue that, and, and there's a debate in San Francisco right now, whether it's going to be 25% or 18% below market rate. We would argue that 25 or 18 of 1,500 isn't the argument. We need to figure out how to get to 5,000, increasing the total number of below market rate units to help more people. You know, at the end of the day, it's got to be about people. So the more people we can help, the better off. And then that's that balance between short-term, great, we're creating a lot of low- and middle-income housing that's subsidized, while in the long-term preparing future generations for, for the challenges that they're going to have to deal with by adding lots and lots of supply. So I, I'm not sure about all the uh, details up in the city. In, in the backyard here of Stanford, Palo Alto, uh, subsidized low-income housing is now people with up to $250,000 a year qualifies low income uh, here in Palo Alto, uh, which is, yeah. j- just shows you how absurd the situation is. Uh, how does that work up in the city? Uh, so, you know, when we, when we talk about who gets to live in, uh, in, in subsidized affordable housing, you know, housing for who? Most people don't actually get that it's, again, it's math that determines that. Um, so in the city of San Francisco, it's, you know, kind of the similar way. So we're debating legislation right now that would subsidize housing for individuals making up to 140 percent of area median income. For one person, that's one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars in San Francisco for a family of four. That's one hundred and sixty one thousand um, dollars. It's a lot of money, certainly. But, you know, when you hear about a significant majority of, of San Franciscans and, and really folks around the Bay Area paying 50, 60, 70 percent of their income on rent. Um, it's a broken system in, in so many ways. And 
Um, so it's, you know, we're so far behind. That's really the challenge. And, you know, we, we got to do what we can step by step to dig our way out. Yeah, so you t- you've talked about the, the, the bad decisions we made over decades and decades. Just go more into well, what are the worst decisions we've made uh, as a whole? Well, it, you know, it's the, the famous phrase, unintended consequences. When we did these things, there was a point at the time. And, and oftentimes, actually, that point was really valid. Um, but, you know, as we get further away, it's gotten to be, to be really difficult. Um, I think the, the two most, uh, I guess, well-known and popular that we always talk about are the famous Prop 13 and the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA. Prop 13, locking property taxes in, creates a bias towards office and commercial space. Uh, and then obviously CEQA, which, you know, a good environmental law that was intended to protect the environment has become a tool for folks uh, to delay, obstruct, outright stop housing. Um, and so we need to make sure that in both of these cases that we, you know, have, uh, you know, intelligent reform, thoughtful reform that helps people. Um, and, and you know, things are always going to be different. The regulatory climate is always going to be different. The, the economic environment is always going to be different. And they're just simply outdated. Um, so whatever we can do to kind of you know tweak here and there, we'll be better off. So CEQA, uh, my my impression is CEQA is if you say should we build more housing here, CEQA will say no, it's going to be bad for the environment. If you say should people commute from Tracy into town, CEQA uh, says I have no opinion on that. Uh, sure, right. is is that is is that a fair impression of that's what CEQA is telling us? You know, the the range of how CEQA has started to be abused is really starting to get ridiculous. In San Francisco, there was an example of mixed income uh, development projects going into the Mission District, which is, you know, the hot rod area for, for development because of gentrification and displacement. I mean, because it's happened so much there. And people are now claiming and legal appeals, legal CEQA appeals, that uh, that gentrification, that changing the physical structure of a city is environmental. And therefore, we shouldn't be building new housing per CEQA. Um, that's not environmental. You know, under the merits of the California Environmental Quality Act, gentrification is not written in there. Gentrification is a big deal. We need to talk about it. We need to address it. But it's not a CEQA issue. And, and and in general, I mean, it's 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 established that single family suburban style housing has f- a far greater environmental impact than uh, more dense living townhouses, duplexes, apartment buildings. But does CEQA not have anything to say? You should be building less single family housing or or preserving less of it. No, I mean, CEQA was signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. And it's largely unchanged since. Um, it's just not, I mean, in, in the simplest of ways, it's out of date. You know, it wasn't written when we had a concept of climate change. Uh, it wasn't written when we were thinking about, oh, you know, good goodness, we better not keep building these highways and have all these cars going all around because that's really hurting our planet. Um, 
And so that's where the reform has to come in. And, and the unintended consequences are obvious to some. Um, but, you know, there's there's a large incentive to not fix it. So short term, long term, uh, what is SF Hack uh, trying to do to reform CEQA? So I think the number one thing that we need to do is simply making sure people are aware of of what's going on. Um, and then as little simple tweaks. So there was a uh, there was a study done by a law firm in San Francisco called Holland and Knight, and they found between 1997 and 2014 that almost 60% of CEQA lawsuits were on infill projects. So middle of the city, downtown, uh, you know, development projects. And the environmental impact for those projects is very different than the environmental impact of plowing a bunch of trees in the Marin headlands to to build a bunch of stuff. Um, so I think that's really one of the key things. We need to make sure people are educated about what's going on. We need to reexamine how we look at infill housing, how we look at the environmental impacts related to infill housing, and also understanding the consequences. If we don't build here, where are we going to build instead? The other one, and this just drives me crazy personally, you can file a CEQA lawsuit anonymously. You don't ever need to put your name behind anything. Um, you know, if you're unhappy about something, okay, but stand up, you know, be an adult about it. Don't, don't hide behind an attorney um, because you're unhappy that something's going in your neighborhood. Uh, do, do the NIMBY crowd, do they, do they acknowledge and are they trying to push for CEQA reform too, or are they pretty, pretty happy with the status quo? Uh, they're, uh, by my understanding, they're very happy with the status quo. The view from the ivory tower is very nice. Yeah, and, and these they certainly will call themselves environmentalists. So, uh, uh, talk about Prop 13. In, in my mind, yeah, I mean, Prop 13 is is it. I mean, Prop 13 is where things really started going wrong. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess, is, is SF Hack, do they have an official position on Prop 13? Yeah, I don't know if we've ever actually taken an official position. I think we, again, operating in the realities of the world, you're not going to get uh, folks to raise their personal property taxes. And again, the, the law was put into place, not a whole lot of long-term thinking, but with the intention of helping people. And that's why why they did it. Um, but I think looking at commercial and office reform – um, both to number one, you know, increase the the total amount of revenue that the state can generate is really really key. I mean, I think we're at an all time high, if I'm not mistaken, of state revenue generated by personal income taxes. Um, and so, figuring out a way to to reform on the commercial and office side, Evolve is one of the great organizations out there that's trying to do that, um, and then that will in turn you know, start to to lessen the uh, bias that Prop 13 creates around building office and commercial over housing. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, if you ask, like, the mistakes we made with, with, with zoning over the years, uh, I guess the second question is, is, why do we make those mistakes? If, if, it's, if it was such a, a bonehead decision, you know, why did we make those mistakes and what's going to stop us from making those mistakes in the future? I mean, I don't necessarily think they were viewed as mistakes at the time. The gentleman that I referenced earlier, Calvin Welch, I mean, he came to political power because the city of San Francisco bulldozed 
Fillmore and an African-American community. And when they showed up, they said, hey, you know, well, we're going to build you a bunch of new housing and you'll be able to move back. And then they didn't. They just said, whoops, sorry. And then they turned to uh, the hate, the hate Ashbury neighborhood and said, hey, you're next. And the neighbor said, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you're not. You're not going to do that. If that's all the story you know, Calvin sounds like a hero. I mean, he, he protected the neighborhood. He protected residents. He protected people. Um, and that's a good thing. So, you know, so much of the problem is we're trying to avoid the unintended consequences. But, you know, in, inherently about them, we don't know necessarily what they are. So we're just trying to be as thoughtful as we can, thinking both short term of, okay, where zoning tweaks can we make? Transit corridors, upzone transit corridors. What are the potential unintended consequences? We talk through all of those and we try to make the best decision possible. Is it going to be perfect? No, definitely not. Um, but short term and long term thinking at the, at the same time and, and trying to gather as much facts as you can, you really just try to do the best you can. So I, I guess, you know, an extreme uh, case to be made is maybe we shouldn't be building demand until we figure out the overall long-term land use policies or else we don't have a long-term solution. Until we reform, repeal, do whatever we need to do to Prop 13, maybe until we get that foundational fix going, just building more supply won't be enough. Uh, what, what would your response be to something like that? Every home you don't build in San Francisco for a Bay Area employee is going to be built out in the Central Valley. You know, we talked about overpopulation as a problem. We've been plowing over some of the most productive farmland in the history of the world to build single-family track homes. Um, you you got to look at, okay, if A happens, then what? So I, I don't think you can do that. I think you have to do all the Prop 13 stuff, try to fix it, and at the same time adding, adding housing. And again, the best thing about this is – Number one, we're, we're putting market rate units onto the market, which is good. And we're also putting a lot of subsidized affordable housing units on the market, which is also very good. So, um, you know, it's not an either or. It, it's and and then some. It, it's all of it. Um, and, you know, it's not always easy. And we don't know that we're going to be right every single time. But it's the best option that we have. I, I get. I guess where where maybe we disagree is I think the real end goal is we want people to upzone their neighborhoods and really have the rational desire to want to do it. And I I don't see until we really address the way the land is taxed and uh, which you know means Prop thirteen. Mm -hmm. I don't think people will ever 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 want to upzone their community. Which that's ludicrous, in my opinion, because upzoned communities means you have more people, which means you have better neighborhood serving retail, which means you have more things happening in your neighborhood that is positive. Now, this is assuming you, you like cities. Um, you know, I live in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, and the Haight-Ashbury commercial corridor sucks. It's T-shirts and bong shops. And it's single story. And what I would do to, to put six stories all up and down Haight Street um, to, to revitalize the neighborhood, to make it more walkable, um, I think, again, I, I do think you need to do all of that stuff and all the other stuff. I guess there's – yeah. you say you want to live in cities. We have – the weird case in the, in the Bay Area, we have real cities in, in 
downtown San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, and then we have the suburbs, which are becoming uh, as expensive, more expensive than the cities. Uh, well, what's the what's the general relation between SF Hack and the way that it treats its uh, peninsula, suburbs, and beyond? So. For the longest time, we had not taken a position on anything outside of San Francisco. Uh, but really last year, the the increasingly obvious fact that this was a regional issue said, OK, we have to think regionally about this. So we're doing it a few different ways. Number one, uh, there's a project in the city of Brisbane, California, which is directly south of uh, San Francisco city limits that has a 684 acre piece of land. It was a former rail yard with a train station right in the middle. Um, there's a development proposal there where 95% of the housing units would be within a half mile of the train station that is currently operational. So that's kind of one. So we find smart regional impact projects. And then the other side to it, and I think this is the key in terms of actually fixing this, it, it doesn't actually happen in the Bay Area, in my opinion. It happens in Sacramento. It happens with state legislation. Senator Scott Wieners, SB 35, Assemblymember David Chu's AB 73, finding ways that would incentivize or in some cases punish those peninsula cities for not building their fair share is, is how we fix this. Um, so it's moving away from local control more towards state control um, because ultimately the state of California has a you know, a desire to fix it from a macro perspective where individual municipalities don't necessarily want to change. Yeah, so SB 35, uh, just uh, two weeks ago, passed uh, its second round of committees, as I understand, and mm-hmm. it's, 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 yeah, it's moving moving ahead. Uh, what, what's your overall impression of, is this thing going to make it? Uh, I, I wish I could give a more positive answer, to be honest with you. I don't know. I, I really don't know. It has passed through uh, two different committees, the Senate Transportation and Housing Committee, uh, the Senate uh, Govern Governance, I think is how you say it, and Finance Committee. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of strong interests in Sacramento that don't want this to pass. Um, we were very involved from the very beginning. We have a very good relationship with Senator Weiner. We uh, you know, we have about 160 business members uh, that build housing around the Bay Area that were involved in helping draft the legislation and, and providing input on what was realistic. Um, but I don't know. Uh, we're doing what we can, but it, it is a uphill battle for a state that has strong, strong local government uh, power in, in Sacramento. Different different areas, different toolboxes. Uh, the the city council I interact with the most is the Palo Alto City Council, uh, which mm-hmm. we bring, which KZSU Stanford brings us to the air every Monday evening. Uh, so, you say that most people would want to upzone because it makes their place uh, a better place to live. Palo Alto residents do not want to upzone. <laughs> they absolutely do not want to upzone. They feel it is only going to make their lives worse. And they have no incentive to to change things. Uh, without mm-hmm. the incentive to do stuff, do you think without completely removing local control, there's any way to make a situation better where people just don't want to upzone? See, I think that this goes back to where, where I imagine the three of us, we like to talk in terms of facts and in terms of policy and in terms of, you know, the, this wonky dialogue. We don't talk about the people, you know. Um, we don't talk about how we don't create that incentive for Palo Alto residents. 
most people value, uh, you know, economic, social, and cultural diversity. Um, the Bay Area as a whole is becoming increasingly white. And uh, one of the things that, that I was chatting with a, a fellow activist recently about when he talks to neighbors that are typically against upzoning, he goes, you know, if we don't add additional housing, there's going to be somebody that is making $250,000 a year that's going to compete over a housing unit uh, with somebody that's been living here, you know, their entire lives, uh, you know, maybe a minority person of color making $80,000 a year. Who do you think is going to win? And, and when you paint it in a more personal light and when you talk about the people, folks do understand. And I think you actually can move some people over. And then the other part to it is while they're, you know, Palo Alto, as you folks obviously know, had a I think, pretty positive election from a city council perspective last November. And I think there is an increasing appetite to do it. Um, and I think that when organized the right way and when sending the right message, people actually can get behind the concept. But there's a large amount of uh, skepticism towards towards what it's like and, you know, the evil developer and all this stuff. You know, they're home builders. They're people that provide shelter for people, um, you know, and changing the dialogue, changing the messaging, I think, can get people on board. I, I guess there is, you know, a, a cultural shift is, is one thing you need, but you also need people who are able to make uh, to make the calls. And uh, in Paul Alto, they did have a positive election last year from a, from a Yimby's perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. They defeat- Thank you, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I'd say, yeah, we have uh, one of a person who ran on a completely pro-growth, uh, uh, pro-development, increased housing platform, uh, Adrian Fine, yep. uh, is now part of the council. But, I mean, I've been following week by week. They were... Uh, just barely able to get past a uh, slightly increased over the state mandated minimum of the uh, uh, the granny unit uh, zoning increase, and there was you know just plenty of outrage, and there are virulent nimbys on the board who felt this was uh, you know a schizophrenic uh, increase in in zoning, and I kind of feel like the yimbys in the council they are still fighting for scraps in something that is never really going to make Palo Alto remotely affordable uh, at this rate. I, I, I just tend to kind of be doom and gloom that uh, in a place where the economic incentives are so much stronger than the will to make hard decisions, the hard decisions will never be made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I don't know what to cure myself of the skepticism that the only thing that will make it better are big, dramatic changes like Prop 13 reform. Well, I think, okay, so economic uh, you know, incentives, those exist, yes. Flip it the other way a little bit. Ask the person that is economically benefited by not building housing if they have children and ask them where their children live and ask them if they have any grandkids and whether or not they're able to see their grandkids and talk about climate change and whether or not they think that's a problem and ask them about the number of people that drive every single day from the Central Valley to the Bay Area. So while the economic incentives exist, it's important for the Yimbies to find those other incentives that actually do get people to go, oh, yeah, I guess that that does make sense. And then you talk about the positive impacts of development, neighborhood serving businesses, walkable communities, um, 
you know, again, people having shelter, then all of a sudden you personalize the argument to, to flip it back. And the other thing I think that's kind of critical to this, you know, we're, we're behind the eight ball simply because we're younger and just arriving on the scene and our voting blocks have not been established, uh, you know, in, in the great numbers that they will be in the future. Homeowners vote at a higher rate than renters. Um, so a lot of it is really just kind of playing catch up with the, the demographics and, you know, as a, again, voting blocks that are strong enough and, and uh, powerful enough to flip elections. One thing that I wanted to, if it's okay if I jump in for a sec, I, I wanted to state is that with regards to inequality and um, power that's, that's gained from inequitable policies, that can be used to, you know, stop measures, uh, like when you're talking about and, uh, you know, you know basi- basically allowing zoning to be controlled at the state level as opposed to, um, you know, the local level. And even if you can get all of the zoning increased in your neighborhood and hit Ashbury, it's still, um, you know, it's a good thing. I'm, I'm not criticizing it, uh, but it still doesn't solve the sort of inequitable distribution of the, the increase in the value of the, of the real estate, specifically the land, mm-hmm. you know, in the area. So you could, you could upzone, um, the Haight-Ashbury area, and you could have, you know, six-story buildings and, you know, turn it into, you know, something like uh, Paris, which is, has a very comfortable density, and, you know, you, you just have a lot more units on the market, but it's still going to be those people who own land in that area who are going to benefit. Um, and so, yeah, w- when you talk about the, the inequity of it, I still think you're faced with that basic problem, even though... Um, you know, we might have a lot more people able to move to the Bay Area and there there could be some uh, reduction in, in displacement. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, I think one of the things that we always really try to hammer, though, is while there are a lot of, you know, challenges and, and we deal with land value in, you know, a very scarce city in San Francisco, you know, there, there are other things that bring benefit to people. Um, and, you know, I, I try to be big term thinking in a lot of ways, but if we were to upzone the hate, if we were to get six stories across the board and have a, you know, increased number of both affordable housing units and total units, you know, the benefit exists for all of those residents. And yeah, land values are still going to be off the charts and we're not going to be generating the revenue that we need to off of this very valuable land. But people get to live there. And that is the value. So I, I guess, you know, one thing that would, you know, make or break uh, the ability to sustainably grow in a city is the ability to fund the infrastructure of where you build. And mm-hmm. that's something that a lot of NIMBYs will point at, saying, you can build here, but who's going to pay for the additional schools, the additional streets, the additional, you know, sewer lines, whatever? And they would say, we just don't have the taxes to pay for it. Uh, a person like uh, Jake and I who say that, well, increased land taxes, they solve this issue. You get a virtuous cycle 
principle of the more you build, the higher the land values grow because of the increased uh, density, and that actually will fund itself in, in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. And without that solution, what is the solution for how do we how do we pay for the extra infrastructure? I mean, private development certainly does some of it, and, and you know we referenced impact fees earlier. Um, I'm a big fan of you know, community benefit districts and finding additional ways to tax new development in neighborhoods as well that would turn around and pay for transportation infrastructures. It does go back in a lot of ways, though. The the It's not even a white elephant in the room. Everybody's talking about it. Prop 13. Um, I believe in 2015, the city of San Francisco, if we had had normal property taxes, we would have generated an extra $580 million dollars. Five eight zero million dollars in one year for the city. Um, that's a lot of money, and and yeah, we can build a lot of train tracks with that. If you're taxing the the new the new development, mm-hmm. um, you, you know it's sort of like you're putting the brakes on the very thing that you want more of, right? If you want more development, why would you decide to go ahead and and tax that development? It seems to be sending uh, mixed signals to the market with impact fees. Yeah, it's a short-term and long-term benefits and trying to balance the two. But you're absolutely right because, yeah, increased fees and taxes 100%, you know, decrease the amount of housing units built. Um, so it's it's that tricky balance between fixing the big-picture problem and, and at the same time going, hey, it would be great if we had a couple extra buses running up and down the street. How are we going to pay for that? So 15 years ago, if if you said that Prop 13's days are numbered, it would sound insane. It would sound, of course, it's it's going to be around forever. But I feel that just now there are more people just saying, well, Prop 13 is the problem. We all agree. And Prop 13 is unsustainable. We agree. And the demographics are pushing towards an entire you know class of people who just are you know just see no benefit. Uh, do you do you see its days just have to be numbered? I think you're going to have a very difficult time having people convincing people to increase their own individual property taxes on residential properties. Um, I certainly think they're probably more numbered from a commercial and residential perspective. But the people that are benefiting financially from lower property taxes are the people that vote in higher rates. And, you know, Prop 13 reform, you know, and I'm sure you two know this, only happens when two thirds of of California voters decide to do something. Um, so that's a lot of political will that needs to be generated. And, you know, as our generation gets older and we see this and we see this problem perhaps, but I don't think it's coming in the next five, 10 years. I think we're, we're looking, you know, 20, 30, 40 years down the line before we actually have a reversal. Yeah. Well, I guess the overall trend is California now has, I believe the lowest rate of home ownership in the uh, United States. It's it's having the exact opposite effect of making you know home ownership possible for people, and it's only going to get worse. I mean, because yeah, there's just even the people who are well off can't afford a home, and if if the majority of people become renters, why do we support a subsidy for people who are lucky enough to have to have land subsidized for them? Yeah, definitely that. And, it, and as demographic gets older, if that's the case, I think that that'll be one of the things that flips it. You know, we're not benefiting from this. We're not making money. In fact, we're being held out of the market and our schools aren't getting the revenue. Um, let's do something about it. Um, I'm, I'm mad as hell, as they would say. 
Yeah, so I, I, I feel like, you know, I not to be like, yeah, too antagonistic, but I feel like the tyranny of small differences, it's just kind of funny how it comes up. We want all the same things. We want affordable housing. We want uh, just basically, you know, this area to be affordable for everybody, no matter who you are. Uh, but I guess, would you say the main difference is of kind of long-term versus, you know, short-term feasibility? And uh, I, I definitely feel maybe we need a, a mix of folks who are, getting out and just making sure things happen in the short term. But is there a usefulness for them, for people who, who have more of an eye in the long term? Or do you think the long term is is not so important as far as how we look at things? I think it definitely has to be a balance between the two. One of the things that I say often, uh, for example, that I would like as a long-term goal for, for SFHAC and I think for the YIMBY movement generally is 20 years from now putting a ballot measure on uh, in the nine counties that would put the entire region under one transportation agency. What I think that would do is that would allow us to, uh, number one, get improved transportation around the region, which is obviously very, very critical. And then number two, it would give us the financial incentives, the carrots and the sticks for, uh, you know, increased infill development along those transit corridors. So suburban cities, we could say, because we have one transit agency, if you don't build the housing, you don't get the transportation infrastructure improvements and have that be the incentive uh, to, to do things the right way. Um, so we have to be thinking long term, 100 uh, percent. But we can't ignore you know, what we have in front of us at the same time. Uh, and that balance is is difficult and people need to be working at both at the same time and uh, and being very upfront and open and transparent and, um, you know, uh, thoughtful and factual in what they're advocating for, what their priorities are. And and if you do that, then the solutions make a lot of sense. So I, I guess here's a question about the uh, limitations of empathy. Uh, it's very easy to be empathetic for the person in front of you. Uh, the message of, of SF Hack being anyone who wants to, to get into San Francisco can live here. That's the dream. This, this hypothetical person who should be able to live here but currently is elsewhere... Yeah, this hypothetical person who should be able to live here but currently isn't here, it's very easy to ignore them and say, uh, yeah, not my problem. I don't have to have them in mind. It's very easy to pretend they just don't exist. Uh, they're, they're not flesh and blood in front of me. How do we increase empathy for these, these hypothetical people out there? So I think the wonky argument is 84% of people that move into new development in San Francisco move into that development, move into that housing from San Francisco. So the significant majority of people that live in new housing in San Francisco already lived in San Francisco. And then the other part to it is, you know, for most folks, the easiest thing I think to draw to is, do you have kids? Where do your kids live? Is it is it affordable for them? Is it affordable for your grandchildren? Do you care about your grandchildren? Do you care about teachers living in our community? Because that's middle-income housing. Do you care about working people living in our community? That's middle-income housing. Um, and and being personal with it and not talking about 84% of new development has San Franciscans moving in, yada, yada. I think that's how you get people on board. And again, we don't need everybody. We, we just need a, a voting block large enough to win. I guess the real uh, pessimistic scenario is when we have an economic system, which is basically the the landlordism we see in in the in the Bay Area and beyond. 
that penalizes empathy and and really mm-hmm. rewards a lack of empathy, we start to self-select for the people without empathy. And we self-select for having the crabbiest, most disheartening people. You get the people who don't mind if their kids have a place to live. They can charge them rent. You get people who mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, and I, I, that worries me. It worries me that if we are, if we have to go uphill against our own economic system to, to, uh, to make empathy work for us, it it will peter out at some point, and I I, I just always, yeah I, I I don't know if that's really a question. I just it's it's more of the kind of worrisome of my mind that you know we're, we're becoming meaner all the time, and I I see that every day. I have another I have another pessimistic thought, and that is you know that maybe we're in some kind of uh, you know game theory equilibrium state where um, young people become uh, you know old enough at some point and gain en- get enough money to actually buy property themselves. And then even if when they were young, they were, you know, the defenders of, of newcomers and having equitable policies that they are seduced and, um, you know, they, they become so pessimistic themselves about changing the system that then they just become the new landlords and then the young people come along again and say, oh, well, we should do things more equitably. But by that time, it's too late to get the old timers on board. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to get your guys' reaction to that. Well, it's the old, you know, my, my daddy beat me, so I'm going to beat you know my son too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, one of my kind of favorite, and uh, obviously we're talking maybe Yimbies and Nimbies, but it's the uh, you know, conservative before 40, no heart, liberal after 40, no brain type of idea. Um, I think that that's something that is a very realistic challenge that we're going to have. Um, you know, we have a, a phrase, uh, you know, I got mine, go F yourself. And and that's that's something that we will have to deal with um, and, you know, have to keep ourselves in check as we, you know, for the lucky some of us that become future homeowners one day going, yeah, you know, there's this financial incentive, but there's all this other stuff that makes it worth adding more housing here. Um, focusing on the positives and I'm, I'm an optimistic person, so that's easier perhaps for me and, and, you know, messaging it from a personal perspective, I think is really critical to avoid, uh, Jacob, exactly what you're describing. Yeah, I, so uh, Corey, I don't know where, where else you've lived. I'm just kind of curious how you compare being in the, uh, SF. Uh, you're an East Bay native, is that correct? Uh, yeah, Oakland. Yeah, uh, I, I guess being from elsewhere, I just feel that people have become meaner here. And I don't know, have you seen that in, the, in your uh, being over here in the course of your lifetime that there is more desperation and meanness in people than there were when there was more to go around? I think that that is. I think it surfaces more. Um, just because it kind of what what catches headlines, um, you know. I, I distinctly remember. I don't know if it was a sixty Minutes interview or maybe a CBS interview uh, with President. Uh, oh, sorry, Number Forty Five, um, right when he took office, and he has this kind of sadistic. You know, the world is an awful place, and everything is bad, and yada yada yada. And I'm just like, you know, uh, poverty is at an all time low. There are more people as a percentage with access to drinking water today than in the history of the world. Um, The world is the best it's ever been today. 
it is the best we have ever had it for the human species. Now, there's a lot of challenges, absolutely, um, but I I just don't – I think that we, we become polarized. I think media does a lot to that. Um, but as somebody – I mean I go to a lot of neighborhood meetings and talk to a lot of different people, and there are those people that exist. But the significant majority, I think, of people are pretty happy. You know, and and it's because, especially in the Bay Area, we've got a nice kind of cush lifestyle, you know, um, and, and maybe, you know, that's a subject to my echo chamber and, and who I interact with. But, um, you know, I, I, I disagree with that. I think that people are uh, maybe not as vocal as they need to be about the positive things. But I think we're in a better situation now than we ever have been. I mean, I guess, you know, really big picture, that tends to be that tends to be kind of the argument of like, you know, is capitalism failing? Is, does <laughs> capitalism need to be replaced? And, this, and you know, folks would say, no, you know, look how how high the quality of life has been, which I think a person uh, who tends to uh, have read Henry George and kind of seen some things there tends to see as a false choice between yes, capitalism, no capitalism, uh, as opposed to you could theoretically keep what works about it and then change other things, such as the ownership of natural resources. And I guess uh, a person who's a, a curious thing is Henry George's ideas have been largely forgotten, uh, but they actually have become kind of resonating in the common sense of how we build cities. They, they, they're really the only economic system that naturally spurs itself towards building cities. Everything else uh, tends to have them just they they they, they can't exist. I, I don't know if Jake, if that, if that seems something you've seen. The or- absolutely, um, you know, I I just wanted to make a comment about um, you know uh, how mean people are. Um, you know, when I go to the Bay Area and I live in New York, I, I feel like the culture is um, you know much friendlier. When you get in a train in New York City, uh, and the the I guess the, the displacement crisis is, as you know, Corey phrases it, isn't as bad here as it is in the Bay Area. But it's it's pretty bad here. And when you get in the subway, people are very aggressive with each other, and you know they they jostle and they'll they'll actually. I, I've seen <laughs> just last week. I was uh, I watched a train go by and two people were punching each other in the face, and I you know I was just shocked that. Um, and, and I think it has something to do with just how packed everyone uh, feels. So I feel like the the Bay Area culturally is just, you know, maybe it has to do with being more progressive and the legacy of the, the hippies. But it's it's paradoxical at the same time that, you know, when I walk in downtown San Francisco, um, I see a lot more people just sleeping out on the streets, uh, you know, needles in their arms. And, you know, it's I, I just thought that was a sort of, tangential but interesting uh, point to make that the economic situation seems to be worse in San Francisco, but uh, yet people feel nicer to me from an outsider perspective. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the I, I, I grew up in a suburb of Cincinnati, and I feel people generally are very neighborly there, and they tend to feel like we're all in this together in a way that I don't see here. And I don't think they're better people there. I just think they just don't see the surplus of demand there. And I guess, is is that really, it, it seems a, like a, a really bad outcome if really, if you want your community to be good, just hope and pray 
that people never want to live there. Uh, <laughs> and I, I guess, is that the blueprint for how we make things you know, work? Because it sounds like that is kind of the idea. It's, uh, we don't have a solution for, if you have extra demand, you know, break in case of emergency and do this. And we don't have that now. Or it's not politically feasible, that is. You know, I'm a big, I've always been a big fan of, of Bobby Kennedy. And so I think two things. Number one, my, one of my favorite quotes from him is that 20% of the people are going to be against everything all the time. Um, you know, even talking about two people punching themselves or punching each other on the subway. Well, yeah, that, that becomes what people notice. But how many trains went by where everybody was just commuting? I mean, from a total number perspective, um, I'm a huge, huge believer in utility theory. And so uh, when I look at this stuff from even from a micro or macro perspective, it's just, you know, how can we help the greatest number of people possible, knowing that, you know, haters going to hate. That's just the reality of it. Um, and you're going to have fringe people. But, um, you know, the significant majority of people that ride the train every day are just riding the train to get to wherever they need to be. And it's probably my worldview more than anything else. But, you know, most people are, are doing pretty well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, it's just, again, the best we can do given the circumstances. What I'm saying is just anecdotal. And I mean, I, I think that maybe the difference is that the trains are just actually a lot wider in San Francisco <laughs> than in New York and, and uh, you know, less rickety. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to see what the numbers actually are. But, um, you know, it, it does it does seem to me that people are just kind of angrier and, and more aggressive here. There was a door that fell off of an SF Muni train recently. So, Maybe we're having that pack problem as well. A, a door literally fell off while the train was driving. It was <laughs> like, whoa, okay, let's. Someone was leaning on it, or yeah, it just yeah. fell off no, they, randomly. They say, yeah, they say, don't lean on the doors. Do not lean on the doors. They're not kidding. Well, that's a pub- good public service message for the people out there. Don't lean on the doors. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess we've gotten kind of like you know ranty on on this end, but yeah, I mean, uh, what's what's something to be excited about? SF Hack and uh, trying to make housing better in the in the you know in the coming months. What's something that makes you excited about what you're what you're doing? So I think kind of in the short term, you know, we've got a couple of different pieces of legislation in San Francisco um, that. Hopefully, we're going to pass in the next couple of weeks. One would upzone commercial and transit corridors all over the city. Um, more affordable housing, more total housing, more density. We think that that's a really good thing. Um, and and we're also resetting the inclusionary requirements. Uh, we're going to lower it after last year. We put it way too high where it was economically infeasible so we can actually get things built. The other side to it, speaking from a big big picture perspective, I talk with people that have been in the city for 20, 30 years, and what what the Yimbies have been able to capture, and this, you know, as millennials move into the working force, there is a more pro-housing attitude in the Bay Area that has ever existed, uh, or at least within the last few generations. And so, you know, while we can be frustrated that it's not going as fast as we would like um people that have been here a long time tell me constantly we're going in the right direction for the first time in a really long time Mm. 
And so remembering that this takes time, we have to be patient, we have to be willing to work, we're going to have to delay the gratification a little bit. Um, but, but we're going to win. I mean, we, we will fix this. This isn't something that is up in the air, or we're not sure how it's going to work. And we will fix it. Um, and, and I take a lot of confidence uh, in, in who I see and who I talk to and who I interact with. Um, I see it every day. Um, and, and that makes me incredibly optimistic. So, yeah, this is uh, we've been in conversation with Corey Smith of the San Francisco uh, Housing Action Coalition. Uh, and, yeah, thank you for your time. It's, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you guys having me and, and fighting the good fight. You know, everybody that, that's listening to this, stay informed, stay educated, uh, organize, and for the love of God, please vote. <laughs> yeah, we're all in this together. Uh, well, thank, thanks so much.